Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, please meet me one more time in the book of Philemon as you're making your way there. Uh, absolutely, let me just reiterate what uh, uh, Pastor John said. Happy, happy Father's Day to you. Get all you can. It is our day. I want to do a special meal with my family, watch a little U.S. Open. It's a good, good day. So I cannot cannot wait to uh, begin those, those festivities. Now, if you've been tracking with me for a while, you know I typically like to begin uh, a message with a little bit of a story or an anecdote. I'm going to break from that tradition today uh, because I, um, I have found some wonderful Father's Day jokes that I would love to share with you, so please brace yourself for what's about to come. Um, what did the buffalo say to his kids as he was leaving the house to go to work? Bye, son. Bye. All right. All right. Um, what do you call a dad who falls through the ice? A popsicle. Pop, popsicle. You with me? Okay. Um, one more. Um, you know, dads like to eat pizza, and uh, so I was looking for, you know, dad jokes and pizza and all that together, but the only ones I found were way too cheesy. All right. I'm going to get back to what I do best, so yeah, let's, let's get to the word. Let me say a word of prayer for us, and we'll dive right in. God, thank you. Um, we acknowledge, Lord God, uh, today uh, that we are grateful uh, for the gift of dads, fathers, who embrace the responsibility before them. I know oftentimes uh, it feels overwhelming. Uh, I feel overwhelmed, Lord God, and uh, it's in those moments I'm reminded that I don't have the capacity to raise my kids the way that you called me to do. Thank goodness I have a Savior named Jesus. I have the Spirit living inside of me. But also, Lord God, on a day like today, we also recognize that there are, are plenty uh, who are grieving today. Maybe they're reminded of, um, of a father who's recently passed, no longer with us, or maybe, Lord God, they... They're wanting to be a father, and for whatever reason, that has not happened yet. Or maybe they're reminded they, they did not and do not have the kind of dad, Lord, that, um, that really equipped them well for life. I, I pray that they would know your comfort on today. I pray, Lord God, that they would join with David, who even said, when mother and father forsake me, it's the Lord who'll take me up. Now, Lord God, would you speak to us? We need to hear from you. We need to be encouraged. We need to be challenged. God, we have worshiped together. We have sung of your goodness and of your grace. But God, we dare not leave your presence without hearing a word from you. And so, Father God, would you just use me to that end to be a, a means of encouragement to your people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. I'm blessed as I stand before you um, to be able to say, I've got a phenomenal dad. My, my dad has never made a promise to me that he didn't keep. If dad said he was gonna do it, he was there. Uh, I had a front row seat into how he, uh, he modeled before me and my siblings what it looks like to, to love one woman, to serve one woman for, for life. They just celebrated 51 years of, of marriage. I'm incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful. My father's a godly man, I can go on and on about him, but he's not perfect. He's not perfect at all. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, my, my chore growing up was cutting the grass. I hate, absolutely hated cutting the grass. Couldn't stand it. In fact, parenthetically, I remember going off to college and uh, um, after my first year in college, I'm, I'm a big time sophomore now. I come home on summer break and dad's like, hey man, I need you to go get the grass. I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't do grass. 
And uh, he said to me, do you do tuition? I was like, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go get that lawnmower right now. Um, but I remember, uh, kind of rewind a little bit before that, 17 years of age, I'm a junior, senior in high school, and um, you know, I'd just kind of been procrastinating on cutting the grass, and dad was about to go off on some trip, and he's got his bags in hand, he's getting ready to leave, and he just kind of looks me in my, in, in my eye, my mom's sitting right there, he goes, look, man, I'm, I'm gone uh, for the next couple of days, when I come back, this grass better be done. And uh, two days later, sure enough, dad comes back, the grass hadn't been cut, and I'd see him pulling up, and he's bounding up the stairs. Me and my mom are sitting there in the living room, and he just kind of lays into me, um, just kind of gets into me for my insubordination, and man, he's just, he's just letting me have it. We can't get a word in edgewise, and, and finally, my mother speaks a little bit of truth to, to my father, because in that moment, I'm just, I mean, our relationship isn't what it should be. I'm kind of harboring, you know, feelings of anger towards my dad in this moment. We're just kind of off relationally. And my mom jumps in and she says, hey, hey, Crawford, I want to let you know, um, the two days you've been gone, it's rained the whole time. And it's at that moment, my dad's countenance just shifted. And to his credit, he he apologized to me. He, he, he asked for my forgiveness. And our relationship was now reconciled and restored. But, but what set the table for that was mom stepping in and giving truth. I want us to walk through one more time. It's week number three in the book of Philemon. And we've been learning the whole time. There's one word that canvases the whole book of Philemon. It's the word Reconciliation. Reconciliation is needed because relationships between human beings by default means that, that we're into joint ventures with two very depraved and flawed people. Uh, and that sin, as we learned, isn't just individual, it's profoundly relational and social, which means that, that if you get in a relationship with me, I get in a relationship with you, you're gonna disappoint me, I'm gonna disappoint you. It's just kind of the nature of the game. And if every time someone does something that offends you, you kind of uh, relationally moonwalk away from them, set up a boundary or a barrier, you're, you're gonna wake up one day an incredibly lonely and isolated person, vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy like never before. But, but for very practical reasons, if, if you want relationships that kind of last over the long haul, if you want relationships that flourish, we, we need to get good at this thing called reconciliation. To be sure, reconciliation is not forgiveness, as we've learned along the way. You can't be reconciled without forgiving, but you can forgive without being reconciled. It's because of that that Matthew chapter 18 pretty much says there is no loophole for the Christ follower when it comes to forgiveness. We, we are commanded to forgive. But because reconciliation takes two, while forgiveness takes one, reconciliation takes two, there is a loophole to forgiveness. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, as best as you can, be at peace with all people. Which means there are those, those situations and circumstances at life where I just got, man, I'm trying my best. I'm doing everything I can here. I'm, I'm trying to be humble, le leaning into the power of the Spirit of God. I'm doing my absolute best, but this thing ain't working. And it's at that point where Paul says, rest easy. It takes two to have a healthy relationship. 
And if you're not gonna meet me along the way, if you're not gonna put in the work, I don't think we can have a, a great relationship. Well, how do I, how do I know that, that I'm doing my best? The book of Philemon pretty much says there's three ingredients that goes into flourishing, reconciled relationships. And these three things, as we've been learning, are personified among the three major players in our text. One is repentance. Uh, Onesimus in our text, he, he kind of represents the, the person who has offended another. He's the offender in our text. He, he wakes up one day and he says, man, I'm, I'm out of here. I, 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 I don't want to be owned by a person anymore. By the way, Philemon is, is wrong. Uh, he's, 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 he's got a log in his eye and this whole thing, as Pastor Curtis explained to us last week, he's, he's done his dirt. He doesn't have clean hands here. In fact, a lot of times when, when there's a breakdown in a relationship, it's, it's mutual culpability. Uh, it may not be 50-50. It may be, as Teddy Pendergrass says, 70-30, 80-20. I didn't think a Teddy Pendergrass reference would work here. I really have to stop that. Um, and so it, it's just kind of the breakdown relationship. Typically, there is mutual culpability here. But, but so here's Onesimus. In order to fund his flight, as we've learned, he steals from Philemon. Paul then leads him to faith in Christ, and he tells Onesimus, you got to go back to make it right. This process of going back is what we call repentance. In, in every breakdown, in every relationship, there is there's someone who's done the wrong. And if that relationship is going to experience reconciliation, the one who's done the wrong uh, can't just confess, they've gotta repent. They've gotta make a 180 degree turn from going where they were to now going in the opposite direction. In fact, let me just say this, I've said it before, let me just reiterate it. If you're in a relationship with a person who's not repenting, they're not changing actions, they're not changing behaviors, you can't have a healthy relationship with them. In fact, if you stay in relationship with them, that's actually abuse. A person who refuses to change their behaviors, that is an abusive relationship. Not only must there be repentance, but the book of Philemon teaches us there's gotta be grace. Uh, there's a subset of grace that Pastor uh, Curtis talked about last week. It's really this idea of forgiveness. But the, but the idea of grace is giving to something to someone that they don't deserve. Paul says, Philemon, I need you to take him back no longer as a slave, much more than a slave, but as a brother. Give him what he does not deserve, grace. Philemon represents what, what happens when a person has been wronged. We have no hope for flourishing, reconciled relationships if I'm gonna keep score and not show grace. If I wanna be reconciled, listen, I know in the breakdown of every relationship, there's always good reasons as to why you shouldn't be reconciled. But in most cases, not in every case, in most cases, what derails it is either a lack of repentance or a lack of grace. Who do you need to show grace to? Third and final installment, or the third and final ingredient, and I want us to camp out on this one today, it's personified in Paul. It's the idea of truth. Reconciliation has to have truth if we're going to experience a restored, flourishing relationship. Well, what is reconciled truth? I, I define reconciling truth, look at it with me, as the painful acknowledgement of real events which led to the breakdown of the relationship. Reconciling truth is the painful acknowledgement of real events which led to the breakdown of the relationship. Listen to me, if you're in a relationship with a person and something has happened and you've drifted apart and that person doesn't wanna talk about what happened, they're not ready for a relationship. We gotta talk about it. 
We, we, I, I just can't get back in relationship with you and act like everything is okay. And for some of us, that's exactly what we do. Someone wrongs me, we, 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 we kind of go into this macho thing, like, no, no, I'm cool, everything's fine, we don't need to talk about it. Well, well, that relationship has no hopes of going back because what you're going to do is you're going to set up an emotional boundary and wall off a part of who you are with that person. If you want reconciled relationship, you gotta have the humility to say, yeah, that hurts. We gotta talk about why. We, 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 we gotta talk about why you had that affair. We, we got to talk about why you gossiped about me. We, we, we got to talk about the slander. We, we have to talk about the disrespectful words that came out of your mouth. Not that I hold it over your head. Not that I'm constantly bringing it up. But, but, but we've got to have a truth encounter. Oh, Brian, really? Do we, how come we just can't let bygones be bygones? I love South Africa. And one of the things I feel like we in America could learn from South Africa is that when, when their version of Jim Crow ended called apartheid, they, they actually said, we want reconciliation. We want relationship with you. So they set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, which was gatherings of several hundred people. And, and in those gatherings, you would have the person who was offended, the proverbial Philemon, and you'd have the offender. And in those gatherings, the rule were you, you have to share what happened. You, you have to talk about the truth. And, and after that, we, 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 we could go ahead and, and do forgiveness and reconciliation, but, but, but it's not possible unless we talk about the truth. And there were a lot of people who pushed back and said, can't we just let bygones be bygones? And Bishop Desmond Tutu, in his award-winning book, No Future Without Forgiveness, I commend it to you. He says these words as to why you have to talk about truth. Look at it with me. He says, our common experience, in fact, is the opposite, that the past, far from disappearing or lying down and being quiet, has an embarrassing and persistent way of returning and haunting us unless it has been dealt with adequately. I love this. Unless, Tutu says, we look the beast in the eye, we find it has an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. We gotta, we gotta look this thing in the eye. We, we got to talk about it. Who do you need to have a reconciling truth encounter with? Who do you have to sit down and just say, hey, can we just walk through this? Brian, why should I give myself to reconciling truth? What does reconciling truth even look like? Reconciling truth, number one, Philemon shows us, it refuses to go cancel culture. Reconciling truth refuses to go cancel culture. Now, listen to this. And, and this, is, this is tough. Again, I've told you this before. I come to the book of Philemon. We're dealing with a Christian who's a slave owner. And, and part of me, just as a black man, just bristles at this because, again, I want Paul to be far more vociferous in, the, in his denunciations of slavery. But, but look at how Paul begins in verse 4 of what he says of this Christian man who owns people. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you. I'm thankful for you. Really? Why? Because I hear of your love. 
and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And I love this, verse seven, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He says of a slave owner, man, you've, you've done a lot of good. He says of a slave owner, I'm thankful for you. I'm thinking of your love and your faith, incredible gifts of hospitality. People have been refreshed through you. Paul ain't going cancel culture on Philemon. And what does he say of Onesimus, the thief? He calls him my child. He says, I'm sending him back to you, which is sending my very heart. These are interesting words to describe a thief. I'm, 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 I'm taking ownership of you. I'm, I'm thankful for you. You're my child. You're, you're family. What, what is Paul saying here? He, he, he refuses to put the the villain hat on Philemon. In fact, if the book of Philemon was kind of being shopped around in order to be turned into a movie, executives of film companies would turn it down because there's no clear villain. And isn't that what we do to people who've wronged us? I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. You're all wrong, I'm all right. And what Paul is, is doing in our text is, <clears throat> he's showing that people are incredibly complicated. That horns don't fit us neatly, neither do halos. Incredibly complicated. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I read about a year ago uh, a biography on Robert E. Lee. And uh, you have to understand, I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. We used to go to Stone Mountain and the laser show and all that stuff. And so I just kind of had these thoughts of Robert E. Lee. Bad guy, bad guy, bad guy, bad And then I read the, the biography on him. And by the time I finished the biography, I'm confused. Now, to be sure, were there stuff with Robert E. Lee that was deeply pro problematic and flawed? Absolutely. Uh, he believed in the superiority of the white race over the black race, and, but he also emancipated all of the slaves that he inherited. He wasn't a big fan of the Confederacy. He was loyal to Virginia. Uh, he called slavery a moral and political evil as he led the Confederate army. You're going, you're so confusing right now. My head is spinning. I thought you were all bad. And I close that book and I go, man, Robert E. Lee, complicated. And then it got me thinking about people in the Bible. David, adulterer, murderer, at the same time a man after God's own heart, complicated. Solomon, called the wisest king ever to live, but incredibly foolish and cruel when it came to women, complicated. I'm thinking of Brendan Manning. I don't know if you've ever read Brendan Manning. Read his book. Abba's child stirs your affections for Christ. And yet as he writes that, he's an alcoholic. Complicated. Eugene Peterson exhorts us to a long obedience in the same direction. One of the great Christians and writers in modern times, but he confides in his journal over and over again in brutal honesty, drank too much bourbon last night. Complicated. 
and that's you, and that's the one who wronged you. And when I understand we're all complicated people, that then leads me to conclude God doesn't love me more than the one who wronged me. And when I understand that God sent his son Christ to die on the cross for the one who betrayed me, now that sets the table for gospel reconciling truth and humility where I refuse to go the way of the world and cancel you, but I even consider the possibility of reconciliation. But two, I just got to tell you, Reconciling truth is risky. Just think of the risks that Paul takes. Hey, Philemon, I am so glad that you're here and I've shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you and the gospel has invaded your life and you're passing now from death to life and it's awesome, it is wonderful. Welcome to the family of God, my child, that I have begotten in my imprisonment. Welcome, welcome, welcome. But, but, but Onesimus, Onesimus, I've been hearing a little bit about your story and you stole from Philemon. Now Paul gives him some hard truth. You gotta go back. This is risky. It's risky along several lines. Do you know the punishment that the Roman law stipulated for captured fugitive slaves was death by crucifixion? So for Onesimus to go back, it's, it's taking a risk with his life, but even more so, Paul understands, man, if I tell him this truth, I'm literally putting our relationship on the line, and Onesimus might go, thanks, but no thanks. I'm in prison. It's not like I can track him down. Onesimus might not show up uh, to our next disciple-making appointment. That could be the death of our relationship if I tell him the truth, but he takes the risk. Or think about Philemon. Paul says, I got to tell Philemon some hard things. Hey, Philemon, do me a favor. Um, I've just led Onesimus to faith in in Christ. I I want you to take him back no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a brother. Remember, part of my angst here in this text is I want Paul to be loud on emancipation, but Paul is louder on reconciliation. Why? Paul understands you can emancipate without being reconciled, but it's almost impossible to be reconciled without emancipating. So let me say, to say some hard truth to you, Paul says. Take him back as a brother. And he understands Philemon might go, I'm out. I don't want this relationship anymore. Paul, you and I are done. You've crossed your, your line. See, whenever you go the way of reconciling truth, you run the risk of losing the relationship. My, my mama used to say, my young adult years, her discernment would kick in something about me. And she would go, son, I know you don't like this, but mama got to tell you. We've all heard the parable of the emperor who has no clothes, right? We, 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 we understand this parable. Long, long story short, um, the, the emperor is a bit of a clothes horse. He's always wearing the, the latest things, sort of like John Muller, man, just, you know, long hair, just loves latest things, wonderful ostrich boots. That's just kind of how this emperor rolls. 
So the emperor hears about two individuals who make the best clothes. Now, what he doesn't know is these two individuals are swindlers. They don't make clothes. They don't make anything. They literally don't make anything. But in order to perpetuate their ruse, they say this, um, only those fit for office can really see our clothes. And so what happens? The emperor orders this outfit and they start to make it. He then sends two of his associates to, to check in on the status of, of, of the clothes being made. The, the associates walk in, they can't see anything, but they remember uh, that if they can't see anything, it means that they're unfit for office. And so uh, they say the outfit looks great. When the emperor asks them how it looks, oh, it looks great. And so finally the day comes when he's supposed to get the outfit, the emperor walks in and he doesn't see anything, but he remembers if, if he doesn't see anything, it means he's unfit for office, so uh, he puts the outfit on, which means he has no clothes, grand parade, walking through the streets, and here he is walking through the streets with no clothes on, and nobody really tells him the truth. What an embarrassment, and we understand the moral here. When we don't tell people truth, we set them up for embarrassment. Just think of how many embarrassing situations that could have been avoided if someone would have told someone the truth? You could have been saved from that scandal. You could have been saved from filing bankruptcy. You could have been saved from that divorce. You could have been saved from that long character issue that you were dealing with, but no one tells you the truth. In fact, what's interesting, as I look at the Bible, man, I just think of two characters right now. Here is Samson. Samson, an incredible leader, and yet he goes down in bondage. Who speaks truth to Samson in all of his struggles? I don't see anybody, but there's another guy in the Bible who's, who's got a lot of similarities with Samson. He's a leader like Samson, has a weakness when it comes to women like Samson. His name is David, but David doesn't uh, die in bondage. He's known as a man after God's own heart. He leaves a godly legacy. Why? Because there's a guy in his life by the name of Nathan. After David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan walks in, tells him this wonderful parable, and says, you are the man. And he don't mean like you the man. He says, no, no, you're the guilty one. Think of the risk. David could have killed him. But Nathan says, man, I'm, I'm more concerned about your growth in God than even my own life or this relationship. Can, can I just say something to us? Now, let me just preface this. I grew up down south. So I'm not picking on you. But down south, it seems like our preeminent value is niceness. We're just so nice. <laughs> and here's my concern. I think our niceness is killing relationships because we manage people. I don't want to say that. If I say that, it might trigger them. And so we just kind of dance around each other and settle for a network of superficial relationships. And we never get to real issues because we're so stinking nice. Now, parenthetically, I want you to be careful. I think so many Christians have misused that text in Ephesians 4 when it says, speak the truth in love. What I've had to learn the hard way in all my years is that oftentimes when I sit down with a person, I don't have truth, I have perspective. So I don't come in making statements, I come in asking questions. Who, who do you need to have a 
truth encounter with? What relationship do you need to take a risk with? Let's go home on this one. Thirdly, (laughs) reconciling truth wants the relationship more than being right. Reconciling truth wants the relationship more than being right. Look at verse eight. Paul says, I love it. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command, to command, to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer, here's the key word, to appeal, appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Here it is again, verse 10. I appeal to you. Here's what Paul is. You know what he's saying? He says, man, look, um, I, I got one heck of a trump card here. It's called my apostolic authority. So this could be a real short letter. I could win this argument quick, fast, in a hurry. I'm an apostle, do what I say, drop the mic, end a discussion, take him back. But Paul understands if I do that, that's probably gonna kill the relationship with me because here now is just gonna be this kind of top-down thing and, 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 and that's not a recipe for relationships. So Paul says, I'm gonna put that right to the side because I'm more important in the relationship than in being right. So what I wanna do is I wanna appeal to you not command you, I want to appeal to you. Man, I've had to learn the hard way about this over the years in marriage. Corey and I are coming up 23 years of marriage and she was, she was um, here for a Thursday night service and girlfriend shouted out amen on this one. You know, I, I remember mo- moving to the Bay Area and, um, you know, looking at houses and finally finding a house that, 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 that we loved let me amend that. Finally finding a house that we could afford. Um, but there, there's one hiccup. This house didn't have any AC, no, no air conditioning. And real estate agents like, man, you don't need it. This is Bay Area. And man, you know, just the weather's amazing here. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. I called a couple friends who live in the Bay Area. And all of them said the same thing, man. Outside of a couple days, um, you, won't, you won't miss the air conditioning. And so my wife's like, I don't think that's a wise decision, Brian. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And you know, so let's just go ahead and do it. And of course we do it. And a couple months later, it's the hottest summer on record in the history of the Bay Area. Like one of 10 days in the history of San Francisco that they go over 100 degrees. Our part of the Bay Area, it it got up to like 106 degrees and my wife is hot, pun intended. (laughs) She's hot as fish grease. I mean, she is, I mean, she's just laying into me and you know, we're going back and forth. And what you have to understand is I work with words for a living man. So you know, I'm like, all right, if you want to go there, let's just go there. And I'm hitting with her with the financial argument. I'm hitting her with the, this is a once in a lifetime event in the Bay Area argument. Man, I'm winning the argument, winning the argument, winning the argument. And I just kind of had to be reminded that oftentimes when I win in marriage, that means we lose. She's sleeping on the floor because that's the only way she can get cool. I'm in the bed by myself. I won the argument. But I'm like, why, why is it that I won the argument and I just feel like I'm just taking a beating right now? And, and I think that's some of us. Man, you, you can process in real time. You're quick with your words. You win, you win, you win, you win, you win, you win, you win. And then you look and just go, man, I just feel incredibly lonely. Why is that? What's the way you wield truth? You're more concerned in winning the argument than in winning the person. 
Well, how do I win the person? Let me just give you three quick applications that I'm learning in relationships. And all these come from the text. Number one, Paul models for us that how you say something is as important as what you say. How you say something is as important as what you say. Just feel the tone of Philemon. It's a soft tone. He calls Philemon our brother, our brother, our brother. He calls Onesimus my child, my child. Paul ain't coming in hot. He's not, he's not using his authority. He's not finger pointing. It's a very soft relational tone that is respectful of people's humanity. How you say something is important. My wife and I have a buzz phrase, 23 years of marriage. We've just kind of had to learn, <laughs> learn by so many mistakes. When we really get into it in these marital realignment sessions, I should say arguments, uh, when we really get into it um, and, and, and one of us isn't necessarily ready to continue to engage, we'll say to each other, just give me a few minutes, I'm getting my words together. There's something to be said for just calling a timeout, just trying to get my words together. Second thing Paul models for us is that he affirms the good before he deals with the difficult. Here's a powerful thought that I learned in seminary. You ready for this? It's a revolutionary thought. Verses four through seven comes before verse eight. It's a profound thought. Why do I say that? Before Paul gets to the hard stuff, again, just look at verse four. I just wanna, I just wanna say some things Paul says that I'm really thankful about you. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I hear of your love and of the faith. Verse seven, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. What is he doing? He says, look, before I deal with the difficult, I just wanna say, there's some things about you I really love. What, what does that do? That's cooling the temperature down. That's setting Philemon at ease. And I think it's even setting Paul at ease. He's affirming some very good things. Last point of application here. Paul models for us connection versus correction. After Paul says some hard things, you know what he says to him? Hey, Philemon, I want to come visit you. Can you prepare a room for me in your house? Now, parenthetically, I think this is, again, Paul being redemptively, redemptively passive-aggressive. I think he wants to stay at his house just to make sure Philemon is doing what he said he needed him to do. That is, take Onesimus back as a brother. But nonetheless, what is Paul saying? After he says the difficult things, he's saying, I want a relationship. That's what people need to hear in real time as we're having tough conversations. Listen, I know we gotta talk about some difficult things, but here's the, here's the final note I want you to hear from me. I want a relationship. I want a relationship. I want a relationship. Whew. I hope you feel that reconciliation is serious business. Reconciliation is hard. So Brian, why should I engage in this work of reconciliation as we close? Verse six, 
Paul says, here's why. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, I've heard this verse over and over again taught, and it's always said that this is dealing kind of with evangelistic, share the good news of Jesus Christ vocally. That's a good secondary application, but that does not fit the context of the letter. Paul is not exhorting Philemon to share vocally his faith. Should we do that? Yes, but instead, the sharing of Philemon's faith in context is doing the work of reconciliation. Here's what he's saying. When you and I do the work of reconciliation, what happens? We become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Here's what he's saying. When I do this work, when we pursue horizontal reconciliation with others, it deepens our relationship with Christ. Paul is saying, Philemon, if you do this work, you're going to experience a depth and dimension of your vertical reconciliation with Christ you never would have experienced before had you not done the work of reconciliation. In other words, God is saying, you're you're gonna hit a ceiling in your relationship with me if you're not treating other people right. Secondly, what is he saying? When we do the work of reconciliation, we position people to experience their God-ordained destinies in life. You know what happens to Onesimus? One of the church fathers, Jerome, in fact, several of the church fathers say the same thing. Onesimus becomes the bishop of Ephesus. He becomes a pastor of pastors, which tells us Philemon heard Paul. He received the truth. He did the work of reconciliation. He took him back no longer as a slave, much more than a slave. He took him back as a brother. And as a result, what happened? Onesimus walks in his God-ordained destiny. We don't throw people in the trash. Thirdly, I think the book of Philemon shows us that when we do the work of reconciliation, it authenticates and magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I want you to imagine with me that all the other 26 books of the New Testament were cut out and the only book we had in the New Testament was Philemon. And you're reading this only book in the New Testament in which Paul, an apostle, is appealing to a slave master to receive a slave back, no longer as a slave, much more than a slave, as a brother. He roots everything in Christ. Here's Paul dealing with the family of God. Something in you would go, that's different. Something in you would go, that's countercultural. Something in you would go, I wanna lean in. I I, I wanna see more, I wanna witness more, I, I, I wanna learn more. And I think, When we do the work of reconciliation with people who've wronged us and we give it our shot, the world leans in. That's different. That person wronged you and you're you're opening the door for the possibility of relationship, that's different. You're you're pursuing a relationship with a person who did X, Y, and Z, that's different. In a world that only knows cancel culture for the people of God to do the exact opposite and pursue reconciliation, man, that magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand something. We can't do this in and of our own strength. In fact, I've been preaching this whole thing wrong to you. I've been giving you the secondary application. Philemon isn't ultimately, it's not ultimately about what we do to each other. It's ultimately about what God has already accomplished for us through his son Christ. Don't you understand? We're all Onesimus. 
Every single day we offend God. Every single day we wrong God. We, 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 we violate God. God is the, the true and better Philemon who every single day when we violate him, he extends grace, he forgives us. He says as far as the east is from the west is as far as he has removed our sins from us. He beckons us into a relationship. And who is Christ? The true and better Paul who stands as the mediator. That's why Paul would say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So here's what I'm saying to you. You'll never do this work of horizontal reconciliation until you first get in tune and in touch with your inner Onesimus. I'm the wrong one. I'm the offender. But if God perpetually takes me back and reconciles me over and over again, then to truly embrace and live the gospel means I pass that on horizontally towards others. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. Those are rare and far between. Oh God, would you help us to be the people of God? Easier said than done, I know. I know. There's always a good reason not to reconcile. Naturally, Lord God, this isn't talking about someone who's been sexually assaulted. In many, many cases, it's not talking about someone who's been the victim of some criminal activity. So yes, Lord God, give us wisdom and discernment along the way. But those are the outlier cases, Lord God. And yes, we grieve with those who've been hurt. But Lord, show us, show us what people in our lives that we are treating as less than the gospel requires. Give us the humility to constantly recognize we're Onesimus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And may it be said of Summit Church, oh, those crazy people who refuse to go cancel culture, who walk in reconciliation. Fix it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.